Our scripture reading for today is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. This is God's word. Thanks, Leah. I really enjoy reading the news, um, and so that's often what I do on Monday. It's sort of my day off, and I just like will catch up on the news. Unfortunately, most of news is not good, and so you're always really excited when you come across like a good news story, and there was a good one this week. I don't know if any of you saw the article that was uh, moving around from the Washington Post about the carpet cleaner. Did anybody read that article? It was fantastic. I'll post it on Slack later, and you can read it. And it opens with this great scene where Vaughn Smith, the carpet cleaner being profiled, um, he arrives at the home of one of his regular clients. And so it's a large, expensive Washington, D.C. home. But before arriving, he calls the clients to explain that a reporter is coming with him because there is something about himself that he had never told them and that he rarely told anyone. And that secret is the fact that Vaughn Smith is fluent in 24 languages. He can speak, read, and write them. And on top of that, in addition, he has familiarity with 21 other languages um, where he can hold sort of uh, stilted conversations with people. And so it's a wild story. Uh, of course, he can speak the big ones, and so he can speak fluently Russian and French and Mandarin, but also American Sign Language, Amharic, Arabic, Navajo. Um, it's this delightful story. Uh, and the opening was so great because the reporter goes on to capture the shock of his clients. Um, these highly educated, well-traveled, elite members of American society who now can't help but see this working-class man in a completely different light. Um, it's a fantastic story. And I think the effect of that story on our hearts is something like the effect First Peter is after in the world through the witness of the church. Uh, listen to verse 15 again. 1 Peter 2.15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. What is the will of God for our church? Whenever that, that shows up a few times in the New Testament, this is the will of God. And so it always sort of perks my ears. It's such a declarative statement. What is the will of God for our church and every church? The will of God for you and for me and for us is that by doing good, we silence the ignorance of foolish people. And that's what kind of what happens in this news story. Vaughn Smith's brilliance put to silence the unconscious prejudice of his clients. And honestly, almost every Washington Post reader who would look at a carpet cleaner and have all kinds of assumptions, um, working class people, carpet cleaners, painters, bouncers, punk rock roadies, kombucha delivery men, those are all jobs that Vaughn Smith has held over the course of his life. Um, and he silences us in the kindest way. You read the article and you just are delighted by this man. Um, nowhere is he indignant. Nowhere is he angry. Nowhere does he shame other people. 
Just the fact of his story made public is immediately indicting to the reader. It immediately calls us to question our assumptions. And in the same way that Vaughn's life and person gently puts to silence many late modern prejudices, capitalistic prejudices, our lives as Christians is meant by God to put to silence late modern prejudices about Jesus and about Christianity. Our lives are to do that. Not our logic, not our strength, not our wealth, not our numbers, not our sophistication or intelligence, but our lives, our goodness. Especially as Adam spoke last week, goodness toward those who slander Christ and Christians. Uh, That's what will unsettle people the most. Exceptional goodness from people who believe things that the wider culture claims are not good and do not lead to goodness. And so when they see Christians being good, deeply good, um, there's a disconnect between their ignorant prejudices against faith in Christ and the reality of Christ in us. And so that's the will of God for our church Uh, that by doing good, we would silence people. And so that's what we're gonna pursue this morning. Let's pray as we dig in. Dear Father, we are thankful for uh, reporters uh, who capture stories like the story of Von Smith. I know that it brought a lot of joy uh, to people uh, this week. And we pray that the story and presence of our lives uh, would have the same effect Um, that it would um, silence prejudice against Jesus. Um, Father, I pray that we wouldn't care too much about prejudice against ourselves, um, but we would care a great deal about the glory of Christ. Uh, Jesus, as we sang repeatedly this morning, is such a beautiful person. Uh, He is so worthy of our praise and adoration, our imitation. And so would our lives capture that worthiness, um, project that worthiness, and invite more and more people to friendship with him and to salvation uh, in the gospel. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. so we're in the book of First Peter. Uh, we're just slowly marching through. And as Adam indicated last week, we're at a turning point in the book. Uh, the first third of the letter is centered on the church's identity in Christ. And so because of the gospel, because of Jesus, who are we? And there's just a litany of good uh, news descriptions of us. First Peter 1, 2, we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. First Peter 1, 3 through 4, we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, we have been ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers. We were enslaved, but we have been bought, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And then finally, 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so we come to this point in the letter and we 
should be struck. What a remarkable turn of events for each of us. Once we were not a people, once we were estranged, once we had not received mercy, we were uh, to be judged according to our deeds, which would not have gone well. But now we are God's beloved. Once we were lost and hopeless, dead and dying, but now we are alive. The challenge that Peter moves to in this point in the letter is that we live out this beautiful identity as sojourners and exiles, beloved of God, but no longer beloved by the world. And that's because in order to be part of God's people, we had to leave behind our first people, not physically, mind you, Tim Chester writes, Christians are not strangers because they have moved from their homeland to a new country. They are exiles because their identity has so radically changed that they no longer are at home in their country of birth. So we still live here, but we're different now. Tim Chester, again, we have become strangers because we have become strange. Our values, lifestyle, and priorities are radically different from the surrounding culture. It is hard to be strange. And not just hard for us, it's hard for others too. And so I think First Peter and just in general, we, I wanna invite us to sympathy for the world that has to tolerate the strangeness of Christians. It's hard for others to be around strangeness. And depending on the meaning you make of it, strangeness can even be threatening. And so under the pagan religion of the first century, one's devotion to the gods was believed to bring blessing on a household, a business, a city. If one failed to be sufficiently devoted, then it was thought to not just leave out the blessing, but bring curses. The gods would actively curse you. And so when a Christian slave refuses to worship his master's God, not only is that dishonoring in a hierarchical society, um, dis, uh, insubordinate, um, but it's seen as socially, economically, and spiritually dangerous, that you are putting the home at spiritual risk, a threat to the flourishing of the home. Similarly, when you have a growing group of citizens refusing to worship the emperor, refusing to participate in the cult of emperor worship, it wasn't simply an affront to his pride. It, there was an honest belief that it challenged Rome's blessing. It challenged their cohesion, the source of her peace. And the truth is, Rome was right to feel threatened by Christians. Uh, not for the reasons they thought, mind you. Roman gods aren't real. Uh, they can't bless or curse anyone, right? Uh, but the threat Rome perceived, it was spot on. Because 2,000 years later, who is still around? Rome is not here anymore. It was defeated by the Christian church. Political theologian, which is a fun phrase, uh, Jonathan Lehman writes, churches are and are not a political threat. Churches both are and are not a threat to the civic order. In other words, Jesus does not commission churches to wield the sword and challenge governments directly, but he does commission churches to challenge the idols and false gods that prop up every government and marketplace whether the gods of the Roman Empire or the gods of the secular West. And since no government is free of idols, churches preaching the gospel will always pose a certain kind of threat. It's not the threat of an invader or insurrectionist. 
It's the threat of a virus or termites, something that quietly works on the inside and chews away at the foundations until an idol collapses, along with the regime or economy sustained by that idol. And sure enough, the spread of the church in the Roman Empire would lead to the collapse of Roman religion and then ultimately the collapse of the empire. One of the most uh, fascinating buildings to me in San Francisco is on Geary across from Japantown, and it's the office for the Consulate General of the People's Republic of China, if you ever noticed it. And I honestly am not trying to imply anything negative uh, in this illustration about the Chinese government. That is another conversation entirely. But when I see the building, I just think spy movies. That's what I, that's what I associate it with. Um, it's got the Chinese flag, of course, but it has barbed wire along the roof right? Um, And you're just wondering, like, what is happening in that building? Um, Should I feel threatened? Our church is an embassy for the kingdom of God in San Francisco. We are an outpost for the gospel. Lehman again, an embassy represents the authority, name, reputation, character, and glory of one nation inside another nation. The local church does exactly this, only it represents a kingdom not across geographic space, but across eschatological time. It represents the invisible spiritual realities of heaven, heaven's powers and heaven's battles against the cosmic powers of the present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil. A church is almost like a doorway to another dimension. We are a geographically and time-bound embassy of Christ's end time and uncontested rule. As living stones, Peter calls us living stones, making up a living temple, we bear witness to the reality of a king, of the king of kings, the reality of Christ everywhere we go. And that witness is a subversive witness. It is in some ways not a threat, but in other ways it is a threat to the reign of death not against people themselves, but against idolatries, against sin, and that is going to create conflict. We're so used to religious language that we often miss the subversion of the New Testament. Uh, 1 Peter 2.13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject for the Lord's sake. To Caesar listening to this, The problem with that language is that Lord is his title, not Jesus's. And so there is a power dynamic on display in the New Testament that is kind of a backhanded compliment against the empire of Rome because we are serving the emperor. We are subject to every institution, but not because you are Lord, but because Jesus is Lord and he told us to. You see this again in verse 16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, literally slaves of God. And so there's this play on words between freedom and slavery. So our submission to those in authority over us is not because they are in charge of us. It's actually an expression of our freedom. It's a freedom which Christians use for love as slaves of God. He is our master. And last in verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. It would bother the emperor that the same word is used for everyone and himself. Honor everyone, 
honor the emperor, hinting that the emperor deserves nothing more than anybody else. There is not a special dignity that goes to him. And yet there are different words used for brothers and for God. The brotherhood, we are to love. God, we are to fear. This nuance in 1 Peter is the apostle's way of acknowledging the Christian's fraught position in society. So he's naming their vulnerability. He's naming their subjection while dignifying their suffering because they are God's servants. They are carrying out his will, living freely. That is what is really beautiful and inspiring about the advice of 1 Peter. He takes very common power dynamics for the time, discussing a Christian's relationship with a hostile government, with a hostile employer, and with a hostile husband. At this point, and, and to these people, most every Christian is in a vulnerable position. And so that is not true across all time. That is not true here. But to the people that he's writing to, um, in each of these situations, the Christian is on the weak side of the relationship. But rather than advocate for rebellion or retreat, confrontation or conciliation, Peter offers a third way. He shows how the gospel empowers someone to not only endure hostility, but to rise above it and to blow it up from the inside. Now, practically speaking, what does this look like? Quite simply, it looks like doing good. Consistently doing good. Again and again, that's what Peter tells us to do in the face of slander, in the face of suffering, in the face of abuse. Do good. And so last week, you just see it's the same phrase, it's the same word over and over again. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This week, directed at civilians, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The next passage is directed at slaves. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And the one after that directed at wives, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And so again and again, that is the call of Peter. What is our posture out in the world? He's talked a lot about our posture before the father. He's talked a lot about our posture within the family of the church. And then now as he goes to talk about what we do out in the world, it is the same thing over and over again, do good. What do we do in the face of slander? What do we do in the face of shame? What do we do in the face of marginalization? What do we do when we're accused of bigotry and hate, ignorance, narrow-mindedness, whatever? We keep doing good. Good is what Christians do. 1 Peter 3.17, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And so that means that it's not enough for us to just avoid bad things even though Peter says that repeatedly. He talks us to, he encourages us to be holy, to remain pure, to avoid returning to our old ways. We should avoid bad things. But it, it's not enough. It's not enough for us to find some neutral ground, to be ethical, to remain at peace. Peter is calling Christians to active goodness, 
to praiseworthy goodness, public goodness. The stories that he's telling are of people seeing the goodness of Christians. Goodness which silences slander and ignorance. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Goodness which shames the critic of Christ. 1 Peter 3.16, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So that we actually ourselves don't have to silence anyone. We don't have to shame anyone with our words. That is not the call of the Christian. We let our good deeds do all the silencing. We let our good deeds do all the shaming, all the unsettling, so that when it is time to use our words, we use them to point to Jesus. We use them to celebrate him, to glorify him, to uplift him and call people to faith in Christ. 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so the natural question that we should ask ourselves as we read this call after call after call to do good is what good are we doing What good are you doing as foreigners and exiles and sojourners? How are we contributing to the good of our city? Like Israel did when exiled in Babylon, Jeremiah 29, 7, right? They were called to seek the welfare of the city where God has sent you into exile, praying to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. San Francisco is a mess, in so many ways. I love this city. It is home to me. I care about it a great deal, but it is a hot mess. California is a mess. The United States is a mess. The world is a mess. What good are we doing here? Could someone say to San Franciscan critics of Christianity, what Tertullian said to Roman critics in the third century, Christians do more than you for Caesar's welfare. Can we say that about Christians in the city? That you may not agree with them and you may think that their beliefs are hateful and ignorant and foolish, but they do more good for you, for San Francisco than you do. In 3.13, Peter calls the church to be zealous for what is good. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And so are we zealous? Are we eager, passionate, creative, willing to sacrifice? Jeremiah 29.7 is such a good word for us in this moment, coming out of COVID with the city being crazy, Um, especially crazy, um, that our welfare is found in San Francisco's welfare. Um, Maggie took Lucy, they restarted uh, volleyball. So she's on a little volleyball team. Uh, It's real fun watching uh, fourth graders play volleyball. Um, But, you know, Maggie came home and was just discouraged because it's just clear that the rec department just doesn't have volunteers Um, and that's just how a lot of the city, there's just not people. 
So we're not talking about doing good in like these like really dramatic ways, but it's just like somebody that will like teach fourth graders to play volleyball. And we were lamenting about it. Um, and Maggie, who likes volleyball, is, is wondering, man, should I, is that what I should do? Um, but we just realized, man, our welfare as a family is found in the welfare of the city. Are we zealous for good? Do we look for ways to bless our neighbors, our non-Christian family members, our bosses, even ones who shame, criticize, dismiss? This is God's will for us as a church, that we would do good, and not in order to curry favor. It's not a strategy for cultural power. Uh, no one is impressed by good done in order to ingratiate yourself with others. And Peter is not encouraging Christians to butter up city officials. And that would not happen. Um, they were altogether powerless. Um, but the good that Christians do, we do freely. First Peter 2.16, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That's what's so unsettling about the good deeds of the Christian. Because of grace, we have a surplus of honor. We're beloved of God. And so we don't need anyone else's approval. We're not looking for influence. It doesn't matter what people think of us. We are servants of God. We have a rich faith family that loves us. And when we're able to love our enemies, to continue doing good, even when people slander us, it shows the world that our identity, our hope, our riches are found somewhere else. It doesn't matter. We are citizens of the kingdom and there is nothing that anyone can do to change that. And so as modern people, we inevitably read these passages and as really as liberal people, um, and we feel bad for the abused citizen the beaten slave, the oppressed wife. And in many respects, like we should feel bad. Uh, there is real harm being done here, but Peter doesn't really feel bad. From the vantage point of eternity, Peter's been in that place. He's an abused citizen. He's an abused slave, imprisoned. But from the vantage point of eternity, Peter says they are blessed. First Peter 4, 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And not only that, he says that this dynamic is God's design for Christian witness. God's design is not winning arguments. It's not political revolution. It's not culture war. That is not God's design to win people to the kingdom. Those strategies just perpetuate the world's ways, right? Those are, that's fighting how the Gentiles fight. But Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount offers a new way. Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I think I've said this before, but honestly, this passage is just, is badass. Like I, I've tried to think of a different word, um, but I couldn't. Honestly, like, 
someone slaps me, humiliates me publicly, and I offer him the other cheek. That is a power move, right? You use your legal power to unjustly sue me for my coat, and I offer you my shirt also. You bully me into carrying your stuff for a mile, interrupting my work and day, making me pause everything that I have to do. And I say, you know what? I'll walk with you a second. There is a confidence in these responses, which has to be unsettling to the aggressor, right? Has to bother him. Like this guy knows something I don't know. And that is exactly the truth. The church knows something that the world doesn't know. And that's why we can do good in the face of harm. Leslie Newbigin calls it the open secret. Jesus continues, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And what is perfection? Perfection is loving your enemies doing good to them within your power. So within God's power, he can send rain and sunshine on the enemies. We can't do that. But what can we do to rain blessing on people who do not like us or do not like Jesus? Uh, Palm Sunday celebrates a famous power play of Jesus, right? When he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's called the triumphal entry. And again, we're so accustomed to the image, but if you think about it, it is ridiculous, right? Jesus awkwardly, I've never seen someone like gallantly ride on a donkey, like awkwardly riding on a donkey into town. And maybe there's a few hundred people. There are not thousands and thousands of people here, a few hundred people. They're laying down their coats like it's a red carpet. They're waving palm branches yelling, save us, O son of David. It must have seemed completely ridiculous to the watching Roman soldiers. Like, what is going on? But it's a fulfillment of a prophecy from Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so God's chosen king would not ride into town on an animal symbolizing war and might. That is not God's way. Jesus rejects arrogance and violence. He rides on a donkey. Who could be intimidated by this man? And yet the religious and political leaders are very intimidated and they kill him five days later. But even that, they are right to feel threatened because he is the king of kings. He is Lord over death. He actually rode in triumphantly, 100% aware that he was going to die. He was testing them, kill me, and I will raise this temple on the third day. John 10, 17, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. 
No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. He did it on purpose. And when we do good on purpose, with freedom and authority, we point back to him. And we see this is the way the world will be saved. As we're closing, it's worth reflecting, really loved what Adam said last week, how he feels like enemy love is the most powerful countercultural witness for Christians today. Why is doing good in the face of slander so powerful in today's world? Because it's beautiful while also being unjust. Loving our enemies is unjust. It's good, but it's not right. That's why it's so powerful. That's why it's so unsettling. In an era that talks more about justice than any era before, and yet is so very ugly, the beautiful injustice of loving one's enemies is striking. Scott Alexander, the rationalist, he wrote recently how justice is eating the world. And he's just talking about the language. He writes, helping the poor becomes economic justice. If they're minorities, then it's racial justice. It's a, itself a subspecies of social justice. Saving the environment becomes environmental justice, except when it's about climate change, in which case it's climate justice. Caring about young people is actually about fighting for intergenerational justice. The very laws of space and time are subject to spatial justice and temporal justice. Those are real phrases. And Alexander goes on to just muse about what this language shift is doing to the world, the shift from helping the poor, from saving the poor, to economic justice. And I think that's just a really helpful thought uh, project. First, it's decidedly more grim. It's more Gotham, right, uh, than Metropolis. It's also more hostile, like a courtroom. Everything's a courtroom, right? Everyone is some combination of cop and criminal. He writes, a narrative of helpers and saviors allows saints. It allows people who are genuinely good, above and beyond expectations, who rightly serve as ideals and role models for others. But a narrative of justice allows, at best, non-criminals, people who haven't broken any of the rules yet, who don't quite suck as much as everyone else. You either stand condemned or you're okay so far. He's not a Christian, but it's a powerful reflection. We need to be careful as a church that we don't only talk about justice. Justice is so important, but it can't be our only lens Reducing everything to justice is going to negatively affect our outlook on the world, our goals, our heroes, our thoughts about what makes a virtuous person. It's going to make us angry all the time. It's going to make us fearful. It makes us defensive because we're concerned about being unjust, about being a lawbreaker. And politically, that's the air we breathe in San Francisco and in our country and in the West. But there is an opportunity here for us in enemy love. Because in this atmosphere, if Christians choose to be zealous for good in the face of slander, not zealous for doing justice, but zealous for doing good, we are announcing to the world that salvation comes not through justice, but through grace. 
That is how the world is saved, which is actually a kind of injustice, right? Grace is unjust, not getting what we deserve. That is what will heal the world, undeserved love. That's why God sent his only son, sinless and perfect, the most beautiful human being ever to walk the earth, sent to love God's enemies, you and me, to do good in the face of evil, to die at the hand of sinners, in the place of sinners, that they might be forgiven, freed from their sin and live eternally. When we do good, when we are zealous for good deeds, we are pointing to the Savior. We are pointing to this way. We are pointing to grace. Jesus saved us, his enemies, by being good to us. And then he sent us out into the world to be good to our enemies so that God might save them too. Why are we zealous for the good of our enemies? Because we were once enemies of God. And justice didn't save us, grace saved us. Undeserved kindness saved us. And so let us be a people who don't just do what's right, but who do what's good. Close with 1 Peter 2. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to God who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Let's pray.